namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami well, we've been away a while but I've always been here <laughs> wherever here is um, this little meditation that I was encouraging you in that uh, when you focus on change you can focus on the object and be concerned about the object and absorbed into the object which is much of our life so if you're if you're boiling milk you better be focused on the milk or it'll boil over and be a mess but also there's a way of looking at life where you reverse it where the change indicates that which is unchanging presence, being. So sometimes I like the word stillness of being. And that we don't tend to notice because we are so engaged with the objects and experiences of our life, which you need to be. Which you need to be. So, um, but sometimes when there's a tremendous sense of beauty, our mind stops. Sometimes just the mind stops. So the, the kind of training that I've, I've received as a monk is this remembering, remembering this, this stillness which is always there. And, and the way I've been trained is to, to, to focus on the changing nature of things, but not because of them, but because when I focus on change, I'm not engaged in change. And I notice that something's changing, my mind needs to recede from the experience, but yet be part of the experience. And in that stepping back, there's a noticing of, of a stillness that, uh, that's always there. And the beauty of that is not dependent on sound. The sound stops, starts. It's not dependent on uh, pleasure or pain. If you pain, you can know the changing nature of pain and, and then notice the stillness. And that's more difficult because of desire. I just got a, um, a letter, someone asked me about Buddhist ideas of, of well, not Buddhist ideas, in general ideas, but a kind of strong sense in Buddhism that you should be grateful to your parents. And his letter was saying, well, what about parents who have been abusive and have been unkind and so on and so forth? And that whole should-be realm is something to be very careful of. And the way I perceive the practice the way I practice is to contemplate very deeply what is the goal you know what is not in some future far distant from me but right in the goal right now what 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 is the goal right now and for me it seems to be to be the stillness and yet be responsible in my worldly affairs to do both to know the stillness and to also do what I'm supposed to do. Now if that if that is then that's what I, I think what we mean by non grasping and non attachment. Non attachment is is a word we use a lot, but non attachment doesn't mean non existence or non experience. No, it means within the whole complexity of human experience there is a stillness which knows change. So even if the 
experience is um, abysmally awful or beatifically joyous, whatever the range and in between, it is possible to know, it's possible to be aware, aware of it. And that, that insight, I think, into non-grasping is terribly important. If you don't have that, then, then it's very easy to get caught in the shoulds and shouldn't be. So one state of mind is more important than another state of mind, but all states of mind have equal importance. So the way I, I try, my insights have worked uh, from the Buddhist teaching are that these teachings around like, gratitude to parents are the method rather than the goal. If you think about what non-grasping is about, for me, non-grasping, uh, generosity is non-grasping, unless I'm attached to the idea that it should be generous, but it's the impulse of generosity for me as a function of non-grasping. The heart's open, available. Compassion, forgiveness, gratitude, equanimity, uh, you can name many others, I'm sure. And, and to me, the, these heart aspects are, are the manifestation of freedom. All of us, when we're not caught in self-narratives and attachment and all that, that's how it so manifests, is this kind of availability. And the availability then uh, functions according to time and place with these heart qualities. So that, to me, is the method. So whenever, whenever it's possible to remember gratitude or compassion or forgiveness or whatever, then it's a wholesome thing to do. But I don't always feel grateful. And I do feel bloody-minded sometimes. I don't always feel compassion. And I don't always want to be here. I'm sure you're different. And you've got it all sussed out. But so if I think the goal is gratitude to my parents, say, and then I don't feel, then of course there's a conflict. There's the way things are, ingratitude or anger, or, and quite justified. Not in my case, you know, but for some people, from this example that the man wrote to me. And then you have a conflict, because I should be grateful. But that's, if you see gratitude as a method, then if it doesn't arise, fine. What methods do I need to practice non-grasping with my, in this case, from this example, what methods of non-grasping do I need in order to be free within my parental karma. That's more important to me rather than I should or shouldn't be anything. And from that kind of question, of course, I look at, well, what is it in my heart that grasp? What is the grasping? What is the attachment there? Maybe logical, maybe whatever, but uh, I need to figure out how I can come back to the stillness of being within the difficulty I might have with a person or a situation or my body or my parents. So if you see it as a method, like I had a a very lovely father and uh, mother and her son in here of Asian extraction and the son is uh, raised in the West and he's feeling rather down he's telling his mother you shouldn't have never given birth to me it's a bummer and that was his attitude I mean they really loved each other it was fine and she says yeah no no you chose me you get this kind of cultural argument going on no one knows no one really knows it's just a kind of hypothesis that one culture says and the other, we don't know. So even like intellectually how one processes one's karmic predicament, the deck, that the, the hand that one's been dealt, 
how you process that is really just a strategy. It's just a skillful means. That's all it really is. So maybe I have a, a, a strong, strong ideas about Buddhist uh, karma, and I feel okay. I have some difficult situation. This is my karma that I have to understand from where I have to endure, whatever. I don't know that. I read it. I don't know that. But it, for me, what's important is it is it a strategy that actually works? Is it a skillful method that brings me back to non-grasping, rather than I should or shouldn't be? So acceptance. In all cultures, all religions, somehow try to have a philosophy of acceptance. So Christians will say one thing, Judaic tradition says another, Islam says one thing, Buddhists say another thing. And unless you're a psychic, you don't really know. You don't really know, but so Islam says it's it's a test, I suppose, or it's Allah's will or whatever. Buddhism says karma. So me, the the, the, the the particular words, obviously one frame of reference works for me, that's why I'm in this business of being a Buddhist monk. That works for me. And that that's to me the, the watchword is it works. That that I, I know how to use language and the narratives of karma, whatever, to bring my mind to a sense of acceptance. Oh, this is the way it is now. Then that brings me back to the stillness of being, acceptance, knowing. If I, if I just reject or resent or don't want it to be this way or hold to my resentments and I have to figure out, I can see, well, my, mo- my mind is preoccupied with resentment or, or guilt or you know, whatever it might be. And I can understand the formulation and the, the reasons for it historically, but right, right now, how do I get back to the knowing? rather than being another personality who doesn't have this particular characteristics. How do I, re- how do I return to my real home again and again and again and again? And, and, and that's where just like being intelligent, if someone, if I've had a really rough time with someone and, and the, someone else says, oh, you should be grateful for them, that they're teaching you, you know, maybe. <laughs> I said, I don't want to hear that. And it's not skillful, it's not helpful, it's not a skillful means. But, you know, I say to myself, well, okay, you're holding on to this. You know, if you don't get to forgiveness, you're going to be a victim to this a long time. You say, okay, so how would I get to forgiveness? And you, oh, yeah, you get the feeling of forgiveness. You say a statement of forgiveness, and you say, oh, yeah, your mind relaxes. And that's a, that's a learning that we do. It's not a kind of imperative that someone else puts on you, and then you try to be that, something that we learn and struggle with. And hopefully over the years, we just get very, very good at these strategies. But I don't think anyone can tell you what you should be. Oh, they can tell you, but it's not necessarily skillful, not very helpful. So what are, for, for each of us, I think each of us sort of needs to ask ourselves, what, what, is it, what is it about my character that where grasping takes place? And what in that kind of character, karma, what, what do I need to develop? What would be helpful if I developed where that grasping wouldn't be so dominant, where the thinking mind wouldn't just go off into that endless, uh, endless way of doing things? So you say, like, I am now a disciple of Crawford. Crawford's teaching me joinery. And uh, one of the reasons I want to learn to do joinery is because I enjoy working with Crawford uh, and enjoy making... But I also have certain characteristics when I when I work in, in a refined way where I don't I don't I get, I get kind of inaccurate let us say that's a kind way to say it to myself 
<laughs> inaccurate. They're just not very good at it. And I can see that by, like, Crawford's very good at this, and he's got a good eye, and he's very patient with me, that I can, I can learn something about my own character. I can see uh, some impatience or some sloppiness or whatever it is there. No, I have to be more mindful. I have to be more present. I have to be more accurate. So I can see in myself. Those are those things I like to develop. But if I say to myself, I, I should be Crawford right now and, and be accurate, then, then I just would feel deflated all the time. <laughs> I can't be, but I can, I can change. I can, I can transform. By what? Well, by, by seeing the certain things in my character when I work with refined things or accurate things that, that is, uh, I'm not mindful of. I'm not careful of. And I can be more mindful and careful if someone shows me and uh, shows me how to do it. That very kind of training um, is delightful. It's absolutely delightful. So Crawford yesterday was showing me how to use the jointer. And Crawford, I passed. I did it. I got a nice, I took that piece of cherry and I got it all dressed up. So that was very, very satisfying. But what's more satisfying for me than just a nice squared piece of cherry is that the, the certain character bits of myself, which are I want to understand and work on in this environment, because that's when they come up, in that environment, yeah, I stayed cool. <laughs> it was all right. Now, I know in monasticism, sometimes we, we emphasize like a lot of formal practice, sitting, walking, sitting, walking, walking, sitting, walking, sitting, sitting, walking for many hours. But you, you, you know, you learn a lot in all other areas, don't you? You know, like with people, or 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 with whatever vocation or craft you use. There's lots to be learned all the time. But if we don't, if we don't have a refuge, if we don't have something, and I would say that's a transcendent refuge, because it's not about the experience. It's about something within that experience. So I would say that's transcendent. Not transcendent in the sense that you get get away with anything. And rather that it's, it's both transcendent and imminent. That's the, what religious language tends to use. It's imminent, like the stillness of knowing. There's always a possibility. You just remember to awaken. And it's transcendent. It's that, it, that it's not the experience itself. It's not the hotness or the coldness, the bigness or the smallness, the liking or the distance. It's not that. So it's transcendent and imminent. And to me, this you know, people ask sometimes, I was saying at the Friday night meeting in Quaker House, many people now are sort of anti-religious, and a religious label, they really, they don't like it for, for good reasons, I suppose. And they say, I'm not a Buddhist, but I am spiritual. So I say, okay, what does that mean? And they always just, well, you know. <laughs> I always kind of prevaricate, or, or, not that I'm asking anyone to be a Buddhist, but I, I guess I'm just saying, well, so what do you mean? You use that word. And for me, what spirituality is about is that stillness of knowing, stillness of being, which isn't a Buddhist doctrinal thing. In Thai, they'd say puru. Again, Samira says, now it's the knowing. Be the knowing. So it's not, it's not a doctrinal, cultural, gender, a. It's not any of that, right? It's something that is common to all of us. So, for I can only speak from my own experience, you have to... Take it on yourself. But so, what is it? What is? Uh, do you have? Do you have refuge? 
that's what I would consider part of refuge. Part of refuge is also moral responsibility, but do you have refuge? If you have refuge, or you have a, a kind of an understanding or insight into what transcendence is or what the spiritualness of ourselves is, right? if you understand that, then the worldly concerns that we're involved in become a way of not only acting in the world for the benefit of others, but also they become the training ground. So it's not just about trying to make a nice table in the workshop, it's also about developing the, the, the character traits which are more centered, more mindful, and more spiritual, in that, in that sense. Now, I, I don't think we'll make a table that looks like a ooh, start lifting up into the air in a spiritual... We're making, <laughs> we're making a desk for the library. So it could be a woo-woo desk that kind of levitates. <laughs> but the, the word spiritual itself can seem, you know, can be about all kinds of other things. But So it's a good question to ask yourself. What, what, what is it? What is the refuge? What is the goal? And is the goal, is the goal like next week? And that's another thing I think that is very important. The goal cannot be in time. It just, this would not make sense to me, because if it was in time, it would be function of birth and death, of change. It can't be, like logically. If you think it through, it can't be in time. So, so that's why you say this idea of imminence. So what then, then, as we each observe our lives, what is it about my life that is so consuming? That where, I get, where my attention is no longer with the stillness of being, but is consumed by what? Thought, mostly. Mostly is thought, isn't it? And the thought is driven by emotions and habits and programs and plans and hopes and disappointments and expectations and all manner of programming. And, and when we look very carefully, it's the same old, same old, isn't it? And 99% of it is unnecessary. You look at your thoughts, like, if you didn't think things you thought, 90% of them yesterday, would you be any worse off? as long as you do the right 10%. So our addiction to thinking, our um, infatuation with thought, our infatuation with analysis is powerful. It's very, very powerful. It's, it's, uh, it's not, you know, I can say, I can joke about it, but it's a powerful force. And that, that force of thought is very, it's a, and very driven by ego ideas, self-ideas. And so say someone who has really difficult upbringing with horrible parents, uh, the condition is profound. The emotions are, are, are deeply rooted and they drive the thinking process. They drive the thinking process into areas of, of guilt maybe, which is very unfair, but, or, or resentment or all kinds of things that come up. So to unravel that, unpack that, and come to the stillness of knowing seems almost impossible sometimes. But, but if you understand the way that karma works, is that, that karma is the is really it's the karma is intention. If we get technical, karma, in mean more technical, you say karma is Sanskrit, and karma K A M A is uh, Pali, and then vipaka karma is the resultant karma. So karma, we'd say, is intention. So when I act, speak, or think with intention, then there's a result. And 
all our thoughts have intention behind them, even though we are heedless, maybe, at times. They're still driven by certain intentions. So the result, the result in my mind, the thinking process I experience, is the result of accumulated intentions. I've accumulated a certain intent. I do this, I think this way. So, for instance, if I believe that someone uh, is, is misbehaving, and I don't really know it, and I keep looking at them, he's misbehaving, 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 misbehaving. Uh, I create a certain attitude, a certain perception, a certain thought pattern, and then I find out, oh, actually, he's got the flu, and I'm not misbehaving. So I've created that. I've created myself, the person, and basically it's coming from a habit of aversion. And you take that for 20 or 30 or 40 years, and it's a very profound kind of thing. So, so under, un, unraveling that is quite difficult. So what we try to do, what we try to do is begin to learn to notice Notice things which are not just from the thinking mind. Simple things, body awareness, tension, heat. You know, these are very, very, very grounded things. And all these ordinary sense perceptions are in the present moment. So the heat that you feel in the room is in the present moment, or however you define it. And then thought grabs that and says, I don't want it hot or whatever. But if you just take the basic sense experience, heat, cold, pressure, uh, just sound, sight, color, just very, very basic, basic things, and learn how to receive those, you begin to train your mind to be in the present moment with the way things are. And that's not a thought. That's not an idea. You can create an idea around it. You say it's blue, it's green. But before you think about it, before you analyze it, before you do anything about it, what we try to do is learn to be present with the ordinary. So the pattern of the rug, I just look at it, it comes to consciousness. And that's what we need to learn to do. We need to hold attention on consciousness that is free from thought. Not get rid of thought, because you can't. But you can train your mind to live alternatively to the rabid thinking mind. You can do that, can't you? So, so you can just learn to like spend some amount of time just listening. And we do that with beauty, a, a, a sunset, the wind and the pine trees, the, the bird feeder and so on. We can do that with beauty. But you can do it all the time. But notice when, when there's nothing special going on, your mind, your mind, our minds just tend to think. And just blah, 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 blah. And then we say, oh, I'm thinking too much. You stop thinking. And then you're thinking again. But to actually just like learn to come to the space of no thought, it's always there. So you just like you just look at something. And let, like if I look at that pattern of the carpet, I let it become conscious. And that stillness there. It's always there. But what do I have to do? I have to make an intention. I have to understand this. I have to have some wisdom. And then I have to allow this moment to become conscious. And as I allow it to become conscious, that allowing is the stillness. Because now I'm not engaged in trying to figure out how big the carpet is, or who made it, or was it Afghani, or what is the color. I'm not picking up the object, I'm allowing the object to become conscious. And, I, and it touches the stillness of mind. And so that's what we do with the breath. You can do that with sound, 
the sound of the wind. And so we train ourselves to be fully conscious, to be fully present with the ordinary. And we need to do that a lot with the ordinary because the extraordinary, the painful parts of our life, the emotional parts of life, the complexity of our relationships, the sickening of the body, the dying of the body, all of that, they're very hard because they're, they're profoundly disturbing. If you get, if you get a, a really heavy diagnosis of sickness, that's disturbing, very disturbing. If someone dies, it's disturbing. Step on a nail, it's disturbing, right? So if we've never really, if we don't have a strong sense of refuge, then when life is very disturbing, sometimes something arises, an epiphany, but quite often we, we're just the victims of our habits because it's so strong, we just react habitually. So I've, I've always thought, like, pick up the practice where it's easy, pick up the practice where it's ordinary, and then the extraordinary will be take, well, the practice will take care of that by itself. And so... Monastic life, we sit and walk around the ordinary and watch. And, and, and. But what's important is, is, is that to me it seems that you have refuge. You know, if you have refuge, if you don't really have that, what, what alternative do I have but just, just playing around with the dominoes all the time, trying to get it right? It's endless. It's really endless. And, and the beauty of refuge, that when you understand that, then everything else you do, you see, it's all method, that's all. Morality is method. Right? So, so the five precepts, or the eight precepts and more, that's the method. So if I'm tempted to murder the deer because they're carrying too many ticks around or something, I don't do it. It protects me from violence, uh, and so on and so forth. So it's a protection. But the, what is the protection to, to bring me back to the stillness? Not some kind of that I won't fall into hell. Maybe that exists, I don't know. Uh, but, but my mind won't get obsessed by things. People come here sometimes who, who have been addicted to drugs and so on. Whoa! It's just so difficult. It's, they come and they're kind of trying to get off whatever substance they've been on. And they, the karma of that is so strong. So very, very strong. You can see they're really, really trying. but. The demons are just yelling at them. And I say, well, that's karma. You know, it's, you, gotta, you just got to bear it, man. You just got to be with it. So you can see how moral boundaries, um, responsibility in, in what we do in the world is so very important because then we don't get all the consequences of that. The beauty of this, I think, is that really the stillness of being is also synonymous with the openness of the heart. Compassion, generosity, forgiveness, these are, these are natural, natural functions when the mind is not conflicted or obstructed by uh, ego, ego things. When the mind is, is addicted to thought, it can pick up anything and believe it. Guilt, doubt, self-doubt, and it just goes on and on and on. So to come to, to no thought, and I think all of you, all of us did it when I turned the fan on. Just listen to the fan. That's no thought. You're there. You're there in the moment. That's, and you didn't, you know, you didn't have to meditate 18 hours to get there. It's always there. So the, the, the fascination with thought, the addiction to thought. So sometimes thought is just driven by emotion. So we can process emotion through the body. We don't have to process it through the analytical mind. That's endless. So knowing, knowing the energetic forms of emotions... 
knowing the energetic form of, of any passion as, as a sankara, as something that's coming through you, is liberating. So we begin to try to practice stillness within the difficult, within the complex. So the complex is I'm um, having a, a disagreement with someone in the family and my, my stomach's all turned up or whatever, and that's changing too. And even that changing thing is pointing to stillness. Now that's more difficult. You won't do that if you haven't really learned how to do it in the ordinary. But then this practice of stillness of being begins to function all the time because that's your refuge. It's not an abstract. It's not something you believe. You just know it. You feel it. You're with it. And then you start to use it, like coming back to the stillness when you have a disagreement, when you have a kind of whatever, whatever kind of habit pattern of self. You, you don't go to that. You see that as something that's arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing, arising and ceasing. And hence Buddhism stresses that. It stresses change, uh, not as an idea, but as a practice. The perception of change is a practice, not a belief, or a, a position that you take. Buddhists believe in change. No, you have to do it, do it, do it all the time. And in doing it, you, it always takes you to stillness. So next time you feel upset, I hope you won't be in the next two months, but next time you feel a bit off, um, disappointed, angry, frightened, greedy, you name it, next time it comes up, see if you can notice it changing. Not just say, oh, it'll go away. No, 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 no. that's just an, an idea, that's thinking. But what is the changing nature of self-doubt? You know, what's the changing, like the changingness, the changingness feeling of self-doubt, or of guilt, or of, of annoyance, or of uh, self-disparagement, all these different ghosts that haunt her mind. What is it? What is it? It's a changing nature. And to do that, like let's say I'm, I, I have a habit of self-disparagement, and that inner tyrant, yeah, you didn't do it right, you didn't do it right, and then it goes on and on and on. To actually pick up the perception of change around that mindset takes skill, takes remembering, takes wisdom. So if I can say that, oh, this is changing, how does it, what, is, what does it feel like? How, does it, how is it changing? Then that question takes me to silence because now I'm aware of the object rather than being caught in the thinking on that emotion. And if I can sustain the, that perception, the changing nature of self-doubt or self-disparagement, how does it change? I'm abiding as a stillness. I'm taking refuge now. The experience itself is, can be uncomfortable, but we're not, we're not looking for comfort in that emotional sense. We're, looking, we're trying to remember that the peace of the mind, which is beyond comfort and discomfort. And then you really, you, you really see how neat this is. You really see, oh, this is effective. Because it's really, now it's touching those deep-rooted things that you really want to be free of. We all, that's why we're here. You really want to be free of that. And you begin to have more and more confidence and more faith in that stillness of knowing change. It's a subtle practice. Subtle practice. And it's not a practice of just becoming a different person. You know, it's something beyond that. All right, I'll leave that for your reflection. Sadhu, 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 Sadh